If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we, we already looked at part of this, this chapter. We looked at probably what is the most popular and well, most well-known part of Luke chapter 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son. And um, it's, the, it's the story of, of, a, of a son who demanded that his father give to him his inheritance, even though the father was obviously still alive. And the son wanted to take the fortune that would be his as a result of uh, ultimately of his father's death, and he wanted to convert all of that into money that he could take and leave and go pursue a life of pleasure in a faraway country. And if you missed that, that I think that that sermon is up on our website. You're welcome to look at that. What, what I want us to know this morning is that just apparent from looking at that that part of the parable this last week, what we recognize is that in the first part of this parable, the story of this son who leaves his father's house and goes to the faraway country, the son effectively becomes a lost son to his father. I think it's fairly clear that, that, that the son, by virtue of the fact that he left home and, and went away, becomes a lost son to his father. But as the story continues, we find that the son ultimately comes to his senses and he returns home and he's welcomed back by his father. And so he's a lost son who is then found. And, and while that's the, the longest and the best known parable in this chapter, it's not the only one. There are in fact two other parables in this chapter that follow really the same pattern. Not only did Jesus tell us about this son who was lost but then was found, he also tells a parable about a lost sheep who was found by a shepherd, and then he tells the story of a lost coin that was found by a a, a woman who searched for it. And the central element that connects all three of those parables is the great joy and the celebration that resulted whenever that which was lost was finally found. That may just seem like an obvious point, that whenever something is lost and you go searching for it and you find it, that there ought to be joy and there ought to be celebration. That, that just seems like an obvious thing. But it's not always obvious. In fact, it doesn't always happen. We'll see, in, as we note in our first few verses of the text, that I want us to read the entire chapter this morning, that based upon what Luke's, Luke tells us, lost sinners and outcasts were, were coming to Christ to hear the good news of His gospel message. They were repenting of their sins and their lives were being changed and were being transformed. But the religious elite were not happy about it. In fact, those whose lives were steeped in a works-based righteousness and believed that, that one must earn their way into God's favor, well, they could not and would not rejoice and celebrate at the salvation that these sinners and tax collectors were receiving. Instead, they, they shook their heads in dis, dismay and, and, and utter disdain that, that Jesus, this, this man who supposedly was of such high moral and spiritual caliber, they were amazed that he would eat with such sinners. And it is that sad fact that really sets the context for this, this entire chapter and the three parables that Jesus tells us in it and that I want us to consider this morning. So let's just begin by reading there, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Hear the word of God. 
Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of good that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent it all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? I will perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. 
for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it confronts us, how it shows us ourselves, often holding up a mirror and allowing us to see ourselves. Oftentimes, Lord, what we see is not, not a very attractive sight. Your, your word does that so that we can have an honest assessment of who we are. And then you, you tell us that your grace is sufficient and that your mercy is deep and wide so that we might repent and that we might be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us, conforming us into the image of Jesus. So I pray for that today. For me, for my brothers and sisters here, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in our hearts and our lives in such a way that you might draw us closer to you, make us more like you. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned in my introduction, this entire chapter, the context of it, is set for us by what we read in verses 1 and 2. Um, in those first two verses, we find that Jesus is, is being a friend to tax collectors and to sinners. He not only taught them, but he sat down and ate with them and fellowshiped with them. And, and in fact, this friendship with sinners really is what truly signifies the gospel of grace. The fact that tax collectors, which by the way was the most hated profession among all Jews because Universally, they were looked upon as being, as being cheats and traitors. But then you add to them the sinners, folks who, who were looked down upon by the pious and the, and the proud. The fact that these kind of people were not only being received by Jesus, but that Jesus would sit down and eat with them. Who one would sit and have fellowship with over a table was a very, very big deal in Jewish society. And that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. Well, that tells us, it tells us something important. It tells us that outcasts, and it tells us that sinners, folks who may feel as though they simply do not fit and are not loved, it tells us that if they were put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, well, then He will be their friend. And He will save them. And they will be able to enjoy fellowship with Him both now and forever. And I want you to know straight out of the gate this morning, I want you to understand that is the greatest news of all time. There is nothing greater to know than that right there. If we rightly understand what the Scriptures teach, and if we rightly understand ourselves, then we will quickly conclude that we are the sinners. We are the outcasts. And not only does the Bible tell us that all of us are sinners by nature, but our own knowledge of ourselves, our thoughts, our actions... They convict us of that truth. And as we noted last week, we are the prodigal son. We are the ones who are lost. But the beauty of the gospel, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, is that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. In fact, this passage here in Luke chapter 15 really is one of the most forceful descriptions that exists of God seeking out lost sinners and rejoicing when they are found. The shepherd that went out to seek for the lost sheep 
is a perfect example of that. The woman who turned her house upside down looking for the lost coin. Another perfect example of that. And even in this third parable, while the, 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 real, the emphasis there is on the repentance of the son who had left home and, and returned back, it is the father who is nevertheless depicted as being the one constantly on the look for his son. I want you to notice it is... It is the nature of God to seek out the lost. It is also God's nature to celebrate and to rejoice when the lost are found. But unfortunately, not everybody shares in that joy. The scribes and the Pharisees certainly didn't. In fact, Jesus' mission to the lost was abhorrent to them. They criticized and they complained about Him. They shook their head the way that he acted, and really that summarizes verses 1 and 2. But then beginning in verse 3, Jesus points out their error. And he does it by telling these three parables. His point in telling these parables is to suck them in. He wants to bring them into the power of the story so that everybody can understand, well, yes, this makes sense. And he tells these stories and he brings them in, and the entire time he's setting the trap and he puts the hook at the very end. But let's just walk through it with him. The first parable that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep. It's a very simple parable. It's a short one. It's a parable about a, a shepherd who goes out and seeks out one sheep out of a hundred who was lost. Now that one sheep was so precious to the shepherd that when he goes out, he pursues it. He searches high and low for it until he finds it. And then upon finding it, Jesus says in verse 6 that he called together his friends and his neighbors and, and they, he called them up so that they would come and rejoice with him and this is a very simple parable. The main point is there in verse 7. Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now let me just say right up front, Jesus is not saying that there are 99 just people who need no repentance. We, we dare not assume that we fit into that, that bunch no, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us are sinners. All of us fit into the category of the lost sheep. The point of the parable is simply that, that Jesus rejoices when that which is lost is found. And what cannot be denied is that Jesus is forcing these scribes and these Pharisees to recognize that they're grumbling over Him eating with sinners well, in doing so, they were not mirroring God's attitude toward those who repent. They were not being Christ-like. They were not being godly in their grumbling over Jesus. The next parable Jesus tells is the parable of the lost coin, in which we read of a woman who lost a sil one silver coin out of ten. She engaged in a diligent search for that coin. She, she lit a lamp. She swept the house. She searched all over carefully. When I was... When I was reading this, I was remembering back to a, a little over 11 years ago from right now, Caroline and I were packing up our house in Tennessee so that we could put everything together so that we could move down here so that I could become your pastor. We had everything in our house. We were just talking about moving earlier. It is a, it's a crazy thing when you move. And as all of you who have ever done it know, well, we, we had a little envelope that we kept at our house. And, and occasionally we would drop, if we ever had an extra $20 bill or something at the end of the month, we'd put it in there. And I think over time we had saved up about, about $2,000 into this little envelope that we kept in, our, in a, in a uh, dresser in our room. And we had that when we were packing everything up in Tennessee. When we got to Georgia and started unpacking, you know what we didn't find? 
that envelope with $2,000 in it. Now, I want you to know we did exactly what this woman did. We went and we tore our vehicles up, looking underneath every single thing we could find. We unpacked all the boxes. We searched high and low, looking for this lost envelope containing roughly, it's, it probably only had 500 bucks in it, but it's gotten to be 2,000 as time has gone on. <laughs> and you can only imagine who's pointing the fingers at who, saying who lost it. Nevertheless... I can identify with this woman in this story of searching high and low. She, however, found the coin that she was looking for. And when she did, I can, only, I can tell you, she was elated. She was joyful. She rings up her neighbors and her friends and she says, come on, let's have a party. I lost the coin, but now I found it again. And here's the point. Jesus says that's the natural and warranted response when that which is lost is found. In fact, he says that such joy is indicative of what happens among the angels of heaven when a lost sinner repents and turns to the Lord. They celebrate. Now once again, just as in the previous parable, Jesus is forcing the Pharisees and the scribes to consider their response to his mission to the lost. They kept complaining about him. They complained about him hanging out and eating with sinners and with outcasts. But Jesus is very creatively and very carefully forcing them to evaluate their reaction and to compare it to that which is prevalent in heaven. But notice this, the scribes and the Pharisees weren't just being forced to look at themselves. They were also being presented with a beautiful picture of the character of God. I mean, consider the fact that in both these parables, God is being depicted as that shepherd. God is being depicted as that woman who's pursuing the lost coin and, and, the, and the shepherd that pursues the sheep. And that's the same character that we find in God. Listen, He pursues sinners. He beckons and invites them to turn their lives around, turn from their sin, and but to trust in Him and live. Listen to the Word of God from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. God says, Do I have any pleasure at all in the wicked that they should die? Says the Lord God. And not that He should turn from His ways and live. The Apostle Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, where the Lord says this, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient, and contrary people. Get that mental image in your mind that God stretches out His arm. He stretches out His hand of mercy and grace to those who have run from Him, who are disobedient. As Peter says in, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is patient and He is kind. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So by telling these parables, I want you to know Jesus is is pointing to the patient and the forgiving nature of God towards sinners. And he's confronting these Pharisees and these scribes with the fact that instead of mirroring God's concern, instead of longing for the repentance and the restoration of outcasts and sinners, they instead just grumble and complain about the sinner's conversion. Now those first two parables really set the stage for the third and the longest one, the one that we took the most time with last week. We only took the most time with the first part of it though. It's entitled the parable of the prodigal son, but I would submit to you that in light of the context of all of, 
of, of chapter 15 that really it, it should be entitled the parable of the lost son and really the parable of the lost sons. We looked at it and I'm not going to deal with all of the details of the first part of it. I just for the context, want to set it up for you. Let me remind you that when this younger son had gone out to the far country, spent everything that his dad had given him, he ended up being in the worst scenario than he'd ever imagined possible and he finally came to his senses and his mind drifted back to his father. And he remembered that those who worked for, for his father as servants in his house, they had plenty to eat. They certainly weren't starving to death like he was. So he decided to, to, to go home. The young man repented. He returned to his father. He asked if he could live as one of his father's hired servants. He knew he had squandered his, his right to be called a son. He just wanted to be a servant in his father's house. And I imagine that long walk home was, a, was very difficult. I can imagine as he neared his village, his heart began beating faster and faster in his chest, particularly as he began to recognize all of the things that he had grown up around, the, the roads, all the landmarks in, this, in the town in which he had grew up. And as those sights and sounds grew increasingly familiar, no doubt that son saw a familiar figure running toward him. And he looked and he said, is, is that dad? And it was. And he was running, and before long, the dad had caught up to him and fell on top of him and knocked him to the ground and began to hug him and to kiss him over and over and over and over again. And there was, there was nothing that was dignified in what this father was doing, but the father didn't care about whether anyone looking in on him felt like he was being dignified. He was just excited. He was overjoyed in his heart that his son, his lost son, had come home. And in between the hugs and the kisses, he said, I want you to get the best robe and put it on him. And I want you to put a ring on his finger. And I want you to put sandals on his feet. The father was not interested in another servant. He wanted his son restored. He wanted to have that relationship again with his son. And he tells him, kill the fatted calf because we're about to have a party. And he says, why? In verse 24. And if you underline and circle and do any... 24 is your verse. For this my son was dead and is alive and he was lost and is found and they began to make merry. Now, what is abundantly clear from this parable is that God is represented by the Father in this story and that sinners, men, women, boys and girls, just like us, are represented by the prodigal son. And that reconfirms what we stated earlier, namely that the gospel is for outcasts and sinners and good news is for folks like us who have messed up and who have fallen and who have failed. And what that story communicates is that those who are willing to repent of their sins and acknowledge their need of forgiveness, God the Heavenly Father stands ready to receive such prodigals, such sinners, such outcasts into His presence and to lavish his love upon them. Now it's taken us a while to get there. But having considered what Jesus just communicated in these three parables, we come to the first lesson that I think we need to extract from them. And it's the first point that I want you to note on your outline this morning. I believe this is absolutely clear and absolutely crucial to our understanding of God. And it is this. The Lord rejoices when lost sinners repent and seek fellowship with Him. 
Lord Jesus rejoices when lost sinners repent and seek fellowship with him. I want you to know that's the common ground among all three of these parables here in Luke 15. Every time the party who lost something finds it, there's a party that breaks out. Every single time, there's rejoicing. There's joy. Now that may sound good, but there may be some of you in this room who wonder if it's really true. I remember very distinctly one time having a conversation with a friend and I was witnessing him and I was talking to him about grace and, and talking to him about what God had done in my life. I was inviting him to church and he says, oh, you don't want me to come to your church. Why, if I were to come to your church, the roof might fall in. I said, you have such a faulty understanding of God. You have such a weak understanding of God's grace and mercy. The son just expected to go back and become one of the hired servants, but the, the father restored him to sonship. Listen, it is the nature of God to offer forgiveness and mercy and grace to the repentant heart. And the reason that is the case is because that is at his very nature. Let me, let me say, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what you have done, the gospel, the good news of salvation and restoration is for you. It is for sinners and for outcasts just like you and just like me. The Lord rejoices when lost sinners repent and seek fellowship with him. Now, here's what I want you to know. We don't ever hear another word from the prodigal son in this story. He becomes a mute witness and a mute testimony to God's grace. But let me tell you what happened. What, what the story gives us indication of is that he goes into the party that has been thrown in his honor and he has a grand time. He rejoices. He has a wonderful... He received the mercy and the grace of his father and he entered his father's home and he rejoiced over the forgiveness and the reception that he received. And that is the natural understanding of this parable and it leads me to the second point that I want you to note on your outline. You see, not only is it the nature of God to rejoice when sinners repent, but also sinners should celebrate the forgiveness and full acceptance that is theirs in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have been saved from the power and the penalty of your sins, then your life should be marked by joy and celebration. We, of all people, ought to be the most celebratory and joyful people on the planet. Because we know the story of our own lives. We know how lost we were. And we know that the grace of God was the only thing that could ever come in and find us. And because that's the case, we are in possession of the greatest thing that could ever happen. We are in possession of a salvation that cannot be taken away from us. We are in possession of a, of a home that will never have termites. And it will never, no one will ever break into it and steal anything from it. We have the greatest inheritance ever, ever created. And it's ours only because of Jesus. And we were lost and completely had none of that in our future. In fact, all we had in our future was the condemnation of God because of our sin. But in His mercy and in His grace, we have been saved from the penalty and the power of our sin and given the greatest gift of all. Now, I'm just going to tell you. 
I can look around the room at times and I don't think that the people that I'm in the room with truly appreciate the grand thing that God has done for them in their lives. Because if they did, those frowns would be turned upside down and they would truly be rejoicing and celebratory over what has happened. We of all people should celebrate the forgiveness and the full acceptance that is ours in Christ. Now I want you to notice something though. Notice what didn't happen here. What did that son do to earn all that? What did he do? To, in the first service, I asked that question. There was a little kid in the very back said, nothing. And I loved it because he got it right. He didn't do, the son did nothing. Why? Because his father was the one that did it all. Listen, Jesus Christ has done it all for us. He's the one that paid for the penalty of our sin. He is the one that lived the perfect life that we could never live, thereby satisfying God's righteous demands. He is the one who died on the cross, paying the penalty that you and I ought to pay. When we get invited to this party, it is only on account of Jesus. It is never going to be on our account. We will never stand before God and boast in anything that we have done. All our boast will be only in Jesus and in Him alone. So the Lord rejoices when lost sinners repent and seek fellowship with Him. Sinners and outcasts should celebrate the forgiveness and the acceptance that is theirs in Christ. And then that takes us to verse, through verse 24. What brings us to this point in the text, though, is those first two verses. Remember, this entire chapter is being written, and Jesus is telling these stories because these scribes and the Pharisees just refuse to rejoice at what He is doing in His mission of seeking the, the lost. So enter onto the scene the older brother. We didn't talk about him last week, but we're reminded that the father had two sons, not just one. We're also reminded that the older son had not run off. He had not lived riotously. He had not lived without restraint. He had not demanded his father's inheritance and blown it. No, this older son stayed home. He attended to the family business. He had done everything the right way. He had done what was expected of him. He had remained loyal and faithful to his father. In fact, on the day that the younger son returned home from all that he had been doing, this older son had been out in the field working all day long. In fact, when he came home, he was surprised by what he saw. He heard the music. He saw the dancing. He, he could smell the barbecue. And he asked one of the servants, what in the world's going on? The servant said to him, your younger brother, who ran off so long ago, he's come back. And your dad, your dad's throwing a big party. Now, based upon the parable of the lost sheep, where there was rejoicing when that which was lost was found, based upon the parable of the lost coin, when the coin that was lost was found, based upon the fact that the father is throwing a party for the lost son, should we not expect this older brother to get in on the party and rejoice as well. But notice the absolute opposite occurs. He responds with, with anger. He responds with resentment and bitterness. In fact, Jesus said that the older son would not even enter his father's house. Strange, isn't it? That the father could be rejoicing and that the younger son could be celebrating but that the older son would be angry. Notice, though, what the father does. He pursues this son, too. 
he goes out to the older son, just as he was the one who was going out to meet the younger son. And when he did, listen, he pleads with his older son to come inside and join in on the festivities. But he wouldn't do it. He was sullen. He was self-righteous. He was stubborn. He reminded his father of his own obedience, telling him that he had never disobeyed his father's will. I've always lived and done exactly what was expected of me. I've, I've always been faithful and loyal to you. And you never threw a party for me. You didn't even throw a party for me and kill a goat, much less the fatted calf. What's revealed in the son's words is that he had a sense of entitlement. He believed he was owed something. He, he may never have strayed from home, and he may have always served his father, but it was only out of a sense of duty. It was not out of love. In fact, I would say that his motivation was similar to that of his younger brother. He only thought of his father in terms of what he could get from him. The older brother believed that because of his actions, he was owed something from his dad. And that attitude, I might point out, is the same as that of the scribes and the Pharisees. According to their way of thinking, fellowship with God was not a gift of grace Rather, it was something that one earned by their piety and their obedience. And therefore, just as the Pharisees and the scribes had done with Jesus, so this older brother does with his father. He exploded with venom and with vitriol toward his dad. And in verse 30, he refuses to even acknowledge that his brother was even related to him. He says, as soon as this son of yours came home, you killed the fatty. It's obvious that this older son wanted nothing to do with the younger one. And he dismissed him as an utter disgrace. He despised him just as the Pharisees and the scribes despised the notorious sinners that Jesus welcomed into his company. And from their perspective, such individuals did not deserve second, third, fifth chances. Such outcasts were unworthy. And they believe that no forgiveness and no compassion and certainly no joyful party should be thrown on their account. That alerts me to the third thing that I want you to see this morning, which I believe is the warning that is inherent in this passage, and it is this. Those who misunderstand the gospel of grace may spend their lives working diligently and faithfully around the household of faith, but they will miss out on heaven's joy. Do you realize that if you miss it, if you get it to where you think that it's all about what you can do and what you can earn and the favor that you can garner with God because of your service, you can check off dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of tick marks of things that you've done. And you can serve around the household of faith. Inside the church, you can sit and listen to thousands of sermons sing hundreds of thousands of songs, do all kinds of things, but if you're doing it in order to make yourself acceptable and worthy to God, you are misunderstanding the gospel of grace and you will miss out on heaven's joy. That's the warning of this passage. It's incredibly sad. It's heartbreaking to see how those who in many ways are the closest to the Father, those who know Him and His ways so intimately, can completely miss that which brings Him joy. But that's what occurs 
when the gospel of grace is misunderstood. You see, there is no way that you can ever earn your way into heaven. The theologians call it, you need an alien righteousness. You need a righteousness that comes from the outside, that comes to you from the outside to the inside. And that's what Jesus offers you. When we stand before God, we stand clothed in His righteousness and in His righteousness alone. Not in our own. We, we stand clothed in that which Christ gives to us. And because that is the case, do you know why the Lord, do you know why Lord Jesus rejoices when sinners repent and seek fellowship with Him? It's because at that point, those sinners have come to recognize that their only hope is in Jesus. And their, all of their worship goes toward Him. That's why He rejoices. Do you want to know why you and I can celebrate the forgiveness and acceptance desires in Christ? Because He's the only one that could ever save us. And when He saves us, nothing can ever unsave us. He has us in His hands. We belong to Him. We can never be ripped from Him. So we can rejoice, not because we've done anything and not because we can ever do anything to lose it. We rejoice because He alone is perfect and He alone is the one who saves us and He will always keep us to the very end. And a failure to understand that, to misunderstand the gospel of grace, will only lead to anger and frustration. And that was the case of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it was also the case of the older son, which brings us to the focus of all three of these parables and really the main point that we come to the very end. And that is the question here. With which son do you identify most? With which son do you identify you see, Jesus makes it clear that he is the one who came to seek and save the lost and then to rejoice when they are found. But particularly in this third parable, when we see that interchange that occurs between the father and his two sons, Jesus is forcing us to identify with which son we identify. John MacArthur has said it this way regarding this issue. He says, if you hear this parable of the prodigal son and not identify yourself, you're missing the unspoken point of Jesus' message. The point of the parable is to call to repentance both prodigals and Pharisees, both the immoral outcast sinners and moral respectable hypocrites. This parable shows us how on the one hand, re repentance unleashes heaven's joy, both with God and with the sinner. On the other hand, however, we see that refusing to see one's own need of repentance is nothing but stubborn, self-righteous opposition to heaven's agenda. Therefore, the parable demands repentance from prodigals and Pharisees. What I want you to note is how, the, how this whole chapter ends. It's very abrupt, actually. It ends with Jesus telling about this father who looks at his older son and says to him, you've always been with me and all I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother who was dead and is alive again and was lost in his family. The chapter ends, the, the parable ends with an invitation from the Father. Come inside. Drop all of your stuff that you're holding on to that you think is more important than me and more important than the lost being found. Drop that outside. Come in and rejoice with me and with those who have been found. It ends with an invitation to actually recognize that the gospel of grace is the only way that any of us ever get invited to the yes. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. 
It's this, whenever a lost sinner trusts only in the finished work of Christ, repents of sin, and is restored to fellowship with God, there is cause for great joy and celebration. Now listen, I want you to know, if that... If that's you, if you think that you're the one that's lost out there and you've gone to the faraway country, this is good news for you because you can repent and be brought into the fold and there will be great rejoicing. But if you are also the one who's standing outside with your arms folded, shaking your head in disdain, you need to recognize too that this is an invitation for you to drop all of that and to come inside and to rejoice in the gospel of grace as you understand it truly that it only comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus said his mission was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. And his invitation for you is to come and to be saved. No matter who you are, the Lord invites you to celebrate, to celebrate the gospel and to celebrate the good news. Because the gospel is for outcasts and for sinners just like us. Every single one. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It is for the people of God. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you that it confronts us at pretty much every point of our lives. It gives us no leg to stand on as it pertains to looking down upon others. But it gives us all the hope in the world of recognizing that by repentance and faith, you receive lost sinners and you find us. You seek us out and then you find us. And then you celebrate and rejoice and we are called to celebrate and rejoice as well. I pray that we would take this good news message to a lost and dying world. That they might truly recognize that you're a God that loves them and will save them. I pray for many of us in this room that our attitudes would change as a result of recognizing that this is really who we are and that we would become a joyful people, a celebratory people, recognizing that which is ours through Christ is something that is the greatest gift ever. Lord, there's, there's dozens of ways that you may take this passage and apply it to hearts across this room. I ask that you would do that. Give us receptive hearts to the movement and the work of your Holy Spirit particularly in this time of invitation, I pray in Christ's name.